Indeed. All right. Good morning and welcome to Run, Walk, Quarrel. I have Andy Dubois with me today. Andy is very kindly uh, offered to come on after I uh, placed a, uh, a message on Facebook asking for some advice on uh, the run that I'm taking on in February, which is from c2snowy.run, if you want to look it up. And that's running from the uh, ocean to the top of Mount Kosciuszko via trail, or at least as much trail as I can find. Um, I've had a few little hurdles in that where trail connected up perfectly, but it went through someone's private property. So uh, I've had to reroute in a couple of places, and a couple of those reroutes have meant adding lots of kilometres, like 20 to 30. So, um, yes, I would have preferred to have taken the direct trail route, that's how it is. So, welcome, Andy. Thanks very much, Ash. Good to be on. Now, Andy, you're a coach. Um, I am. Would you like to explain further what sort of coaching you do? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I can do it. Yeah, go for so it. You, Tell us what you do. So, yeah, I'm um, online ultra coach. Basically, I specialise in in ultra athletes um so yeah if you want to do a fast park run or a fast half marathon i'm not your guy i specialize in 100k multi-stage 100 mile challenging difficult races um i've been doing that for full time for the last 10 years or so but coaching on and off in a part-time basis for the last 20 or so years um so yeah that that's kind of what i do um all online. I've got clients all over the world from Iceland, Argentina, Hong Kong, US, and of course, you know, a stack here in Australia. Awesome. And how many clients do you have in your books? Pretty well full up at the moment. So I've got I've got 100 clients, and that's kind of what I cap it at anymore. And I can't service the clients to the uh, level and, and um, you know, quality that I'd like to service them to. So I kind of cap it. Uh, and I'm pretty well booked out at the moment. Uh, a few spots come up here and there every now and then, but yeah, that's that keeps me pretty well full time, uh, five days a week, uh, which is yeah, it's great. It's it's a, a good position to be in. And um, when you deal online as such, how do you do that? Do you do you phone your clients? Do you um, write a pro like what's what's your way of coaching online? Because uh, there's online there's a ton of coaches there is and everyone seems to have a different way of of tackling it so what's your particular so yeah i think i think the key for online is you've got to get to know your client um you know if people just want a training program then i'm not the person to come to see because i want to get to know you i want to get to know what makes you tick what you like what you don't like and to do that it's just involving regular communication and for me, I prefer written communication rather than phone calls. Not not that I don't chat to clients, I do, but for me, if it's written, I can you know it's it's a reference point. Um, whereas phone conversations, you know, I, I'm worried about missing things, forgetting things. Um, I'll just turn those notifications off. Um, so yeah, um, <laughs> and that's Siri for you. Um, so yeah, it's about. Um, getting to know the client as well as I possibly can through regular communication. I use Training Peaks as a platform to deliver. All right, so sorry about the intermission here. Uh, some minor technical problems have occurred. Let's get back into the story. You coach your clients. So maybe go over how you coach 
again and we'll uh, edit that together <laughs> at the end. All right, so we'll just go from that question, how do I coach? Yeah, let's let's do that. All right, cool. Um, okay, so in terms of coaching, I use Training Peaks in terms of delivering the actual uh, run sessions, but I think the better you get to know your clients, the better you can deliver a program because running's not just about, you know, run 10Ks Monday, run 15Ks Tuesday, do intervals Wednesday, uh, particularly for ultras. It's about getting to know the client, what motivates them, what their strengths or weaknesses, both physically and mentally are, getting to know them as a person so you can fit their training in around their life so you know they've got kids, you know they've got a stressful job because all that kind of stuff impacts what they can do training-wise. So I, I encourage regular communication with my clients through email, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, texts, whatever. Um, I don't do a lot of phone conversations just purely so if it's written down, I can refer back to it, whereas if it's a phone conversation, it's trusted to my memory, which um, I don't trust. Um, but I do have phone conversations with some clients and Skype conversations every now and then. But primarily it's about getting to know the client as well as I possibly can through regular usually weekly, twice weekly, daily conversations with some clients because uh, that really helps deliver the best program possible tailored specifically to them and, and what they're training for and their training environment rather than a more general type of plan. Excellent. So uh, training for multi-day events, what's your, uh, your number one training tip for multi-day? Well, I think for multi-days, and I think it applies to any ultras. I think you've got to look at um, the event you're training for and the requirements of that event. Um, and for me, I've got to break it down into two separate categories. You've got the fitness required for that event, but you've also got the durability or the you know, the how well your muscles can handle the event. Uh, which is different to the fitness because you can be super fit but um, through, you know, interval training and all that kind of stuff. But if your legs turn to mush, um, you know, 40Ks into the long day on a multi-stage because your quads are just smashed, then all that fitness is completely wasted. Um, so I think you've got to look at it in terms of conditioning of the legs and fitness. So for a multi-stage, like I was talking to someone just the other day on um, MDS, um, and we were saying, look, you know, MDS obviously has a fairly big sand component of running. Now, if you're not conditioned to run on the sand, then it doesn't matter how fit you are, that sand is going to be your undoing. You know, you, you've got to change your technique running on the sand. Your calves have to work harder. There's more potential for blisters. There's a whole lot of things that go on for that. So I think you've got to look at the event you're training for and think about what fitness requirements there are and what conditioning requirements there are, and then design your training plan according to that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, if uh, if the run involves a lot of mountain climbing, basically you're saying run a lot of mountains? Pretty much. Um, but once again, it's about getting specific and thinking, okay, in your race, how much running uphill are you going to do versus hiking? Um and for multi-days, obviously, you're going to be doing a fair bit of hiking and, and not a lot of running uphill. Um, yep. And people make the mistake of thinking if they can run uphills, they can hike uphills. Hiking's a different sport. It's a different activity, different biomechanical load on the body, different type of fitness required, different muscle groups. Um, even the same muscles like quads and glutes work in a different way. 
So unless you train that hiking, then you're going to come unstuck on the day. And then you look at the downhill in the running, like is it super technical, rocky, scree slopes, muddy, slippery? Is it more flowing single track? Is it steep? Uh, is it more gradual? And that will also determine what kind of uh, hill training you should do. So it's not just hill training per se. It's like, oh, what kind of hills are you doing? Uh, and what, then you've got to look at what hills can you actually train on. Like it would be great to have access to the specific hills that are involved in the race, but most of us living in capital cities just can't do that. So you've got to think, well, how can I adapt what I've got to be the best fit to the race I'm training for? Yeah. So with your clients that are overseas, do you spend a lot of time looking at Google Maps, et cetera, and trying to design training for them? Or is you basically say to them, look, you need to go and find something that's like the course. The course is like this. What's what's in your town? How do yeah, you tackle that? A bit of both. It's it's first educating the client on the need. So, for example, a client signs up for a 100K race. It's got 6,000 metres of vert. So, okay, you need to find some kind of run that's approaches 600 metres of vert per 10K because that's what your race is. Um, so, you know, one of the questionnaires, well, the questionnaire I send my clients, you know, one of the questions talks about is your training environment. What have you got hills-wise? How long is it? How long does it take you to run up it? How steep is it? Um, I'll often look through Strava or um, training peaks to look back through runs that they might have done before to see what they've got around them. Um and then we can start, okay, so, you know, see that run you did on the 25th of September? That looks like it's got a five-minute hill and it looks like it's about 15%. So we can use that hill. So it's really trying to understand their training environment. Now, you know, some areas like Hong Kong, for example, I've got a stack of clients in Hong Kong. So I know Hong Kong trails pretty well, even though I've only been there a few times. So, you know, I know Hong Kong trails better than some locals um, just because I've got you know, 20, 30 clients that live there. So I can say, well, try this trail or try that trail. Um, so yeah, through a combination of feedback from the clients and looking at Strava and training peaks and Google maps, you can usually get a pretty good idea of what's around, uh, and what they can use to train on. The, of course that the only thing it doesn't give me is how technical the trail is like that's not measured by anything. So I rely on feedback from the client, um, for that. So, but it's rare. I get a client that lives somewhere that I've never coached somewhere before. So usually I can you know someone says, you know, I live here, or I live there, oh, I've got a client who lives there as well. So I've usually got some understanding of what the trails there are like, which helps. Yeah. How did you end up with so many clients in Hong Kong? Hong Kong's um yeah, surprised me. You know, I I um I picked up a few clients just from, you know, Google and word of mouth. Um, and then Hong Kong's just a thriving uh, trial running community like it's got a population of you know five million or something some roughly the same as sydney but hong kong in in its race season which is really october to uh, march has got you know probably two ultras on every weekend for five months straight um not to mention shorter trial races left right and center it is absolutely massive trail running hong kong um so there's a lot of clients there a lot of people running trails there so once you kind of get your foot in the door and, and start coaching a few clients you know it's like any business if you do a good job word of mouth spreads and you pick up more and more clients um so yeah that's kind of how, how it worked out wow that's um it's becoming a bit like that uh in southeast queensland where there's just ultras on every weekend and there's more than one 
Um, yeah, cer- yeah. Certainly run trail running events. Jeez, you could you could go to a trail running event like every 50Ks at the moment. It's, yeah. it's kind of crazy. Well, Hong Kong's magnify that by twice, three times, and you start to get some idea um, of the magnitude of trail runners and trail events in Hong Kong. It is just, yeah, I mean, there must be 10 plus 100K races. Uh, keeping in mind, we're, we're talking a population the same size as Sydney. No, <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah, that is nuts. Absolutely nuts. So, uh, yeah. Now, what about your own personal running history? Um, yeah, I, I come from a Ironman background many years ago. I mean, I've run since I was five. Um, you know, I've got a photo of me winning a race in year one at school. I haven't really stopped running since then. Like, I think I had a year off at uni where I drank beer. Um, but that was only a year that I was straight back into it again. So I've run consistently my whole life. Um, got a serious when I was kind of 21, saw Hawaii on TV on Wide World of Sports for those listeners that are old enough to remember that. Um, and kind of thought, yeah, that was cool. I'd like to do that. Um, and being the personality type that I have, you know, I went to a triathlon coach and um, said to him, look, I want to do Ironman. And he said, okay, well, let's, let's build you into it. You've never done tries before. Let's do some short races and, you know, five-year plan, blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, look, you're not listening to me. I want to do Ironman. I, I don't, don't want to do sprint distances. I don't want to do Olympic distances. I just want to do Ironman. I want to do Y. And he said, no, 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 you've got to build into it. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. So anyway, cut a long story short, I did an Ironman virtually my second year into tries. Um, and then it took me five years to qualify for Hawaii due to a, a number of setbacks like, you know, flat tyres, the seat post holding my the, – sorry, the bolt holding my seat onto my bike snapped in half in the middle of the bike ride, um, bitten by wasps the day before the race, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it took me five years to get there, did Ironman a couple of times, um, moved to London just for a change. The thought of doing triathlons in London just didn't appeal at all. Um, did a marathon – problem with a marathon is you finish before nine o'clock in the morning so what do you do for the rest of the day so then <laughs> I made my um well once you did Ironman you used to doing you know nine hours nine and a half hours or whatever so you used to being yep. a whole day event so you know a marathon starts at six you're done done before nine um like yeah it just seemed like a waste of a day so anyway a mate of mine suggested uh, this there's this 95 mile race in Scotland do you want to do that I said oh, that sounds cool so yeah, that was my first ultra, the West Highland Way in Scotland. Um, coming from an Ironman background and being a relatively good runner in Ironman, like I had a, a 3.03 PB Ironman marathon, so I was a decent runner. Yeah. Um, I just thought I could just do a bit longer runs and that would be all I needed to do, to do a 100-mile race, just you know, take a long run from 30K to 60K and that's about it. So anyway, I started the West Highland Way race and I took off um, pretty much at the front of the pack and I was running with a guy by the name of Jez Bragg which some listeners may be familiar with but um, he the next kind of five years he was a kind of like the premier UK ultra runner he, he won UTMB one year uh, and that year in the West Island way he set the course record so I ran with him for 20 miles and then kind of blew up pretty badly um, finished nine hours slower than him uh, made every mistake you can make in terms of an ultra pacing, nutrition, poor training, not specific training, you know, in the mistake you can make and I made it. Um, but I finished. So that was good. And then 
my kind of wife said to me afterwards, like, you know, do you want to do this anymore? I said, yeah, I think I do. So you're crazy. Like I could barely walk. I was seriously messed up from that race. Like couldn't run for a month afterwards. But I thought, you know what? I, I think I think I've got it in me to do well at this kind of race. I just think I need to rethink how I trained for it. So I did that, and the second race I did was UTMB, which back then you just needed to be quick on the trigger in terms of entering. Um, you didn't need to do, you know, three qualifying races and go into a lottery. So the second race was UTMB. I trained very, very differently. Um, I had a, an absolute blind of a race, ran 28.45 and finished on a 74th or something like that. Um, smiled the whole way, loved the race. You know, I could run two days afterwards and absolutely nailed everything in the race. So from then I was pretty much hooked. Um, and then I started transitioning more to coaching people. I thought, well, I've, I found a bit of a, a trick here on how to prepare. Um, so I started getting into coaching um, more and more people ultras from that point on. That kind of that UTMB was really the start of my ultra journey in terms of both racing and, and um, coaching. Um, since then, yeah, I haven't – look, I'm not a prolific racer. Um, I like to train hard, I, and I love my training, and I probably only pick a few races a year. And then you know, five years ago, had my or four and a half years ago, I had my first child, and racing since then has been uh, put on a bit of a back burner. Um, got two kids now, and I'm just starting to get out of the, the the new baby fog that happens with most parents when they have kids, and get back into racing hopefully next year in a more serious way. Yeah. And so, what's the? Uh, do you have a particular race that you're you're planning on for next year? Is your A yeah, look, I'm, I'm hoping to do the race in the Lofoten Islands in Norway, 100 mile race, um, which you know the Lofoten Islands is is way up north. It's kind of above the Arctic Circle, and it's it's somewhere my wife and I have always been really keen to visit. And we're big travellers, and we never quite got there. So when I heard there was a race there, I thought perfect, um, I'll be able to see see the whole Lofoten Islands in one go and do a race at the same time. So I'd like to do that, and if that goes well, and if I get lucky in the lottery, I'd like to do Tour de Jantz in September. Um, but yeah, that's lottery, so I just have to see how I go with my luck in, in February. Um, so yeah, they're, they're the main goals for next year, if all goes well. Awesome. Excellent. And uh, so in, your, in all of your running and all of your coaching, without uh, mentioning names uh, and embarrassing people directly, uh what do you have in the way of good stories? So I'll give you my running story about Ironman first. So I, a little bit similar journey to you, I got, um, I broke both my legs doing my childhood sport, which was gymnastics. Yep. And uh, yeah, I had uh, 64 odd fractures in my legs after making uh, a significant mistake and landing on the concrete beside the mats. Um, back when this is back when you didn't need the massive uh, matting regulations that you have yeah. these days. And um, so anyway, it was suggested that I buy a bike um, by my doctor at the time to start rebuilding my legs after spending a, a bit of time sitting on my backside. And uh, so I bought a bike and I started riding that and really enjoying that. And then I found this thing called triathlon. And uh, I can't remember what my first try. I think my first triathlon was a sprint distance. Um, it wasn't very long. And I'd been a swimmer as a, a kid as well. And then, yeah, I saw Ironman, I'm pretty sure, on Wild World of Sports. 
and yeah. um, the same sort of thing. Anyway, I went across to New Zealand to do the New Zealand Ironman and got out of the water in good time. And then I'm on the bike and I think I was about 60 or 70 Ks into the bike and I got hit by a car. <laughs> so, yeah, quite the experience. I didn't do Ironman again after that. I was, <laughs> no, this whole thing of getting hit by a car during a race, yeah, it's just not for me. So, no. uh, yeah, that was uh, – so then my – I realized that, hang on a second, trail running, cars don't hit you out here. Um, the only thing that you get, you might get bitten by a snake if you're really unlucky, but um, yeah, that's my Iron Man story. So I, I haven't had the desire, I, I, I watch Iron Man quite a bit, but I haven't had the desire to go back and do do another one. So uh, yes, I, I then, then I discovered that you could run long distances, similar sort of thing where I went, oh, I could fill in hours if you just go at the right pace. Yeah, so, yeah that's right. Uh, yes, which is uh, it's something I still enjoy doing. Like I, I love getting up early in the morning and going out, just seeing what the world is doing for a few hours, and I just do that by, by running. So, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, so anyway, that's my Iron Man story. So stories, what do you got? Well, I suppose, you know, my Ironman, I'll elaborate a bit more about my journey. I mean, as I said, I wanted to do Hawaii. That was the, the main goal for, for doing Ironman, uh, for doing triathlon. Like, I didn't have any ambition of doing shorter races. I just wanted to do Hawaii. So, yeah, the first year I did it, I mean, back then you needed to run a time of around around 9.40 um, to qualify. So, the first year I did it, I thought, oh, I'll just do it, uh, just for the experience uh, I'll get a handle on what's involved, how I go, and I can build from there. So first year was good, did 10 hours, 12. And I thought, okay, cool. You know, first year, I'm sure I can knock 30 minutes off that. That, that shouldn't be a problem. So second year, yes, yeah, similar to you, I was about 70K in the bike, doing well. And then next minute, I'm sliding along the asphalt on my back, um, wondering what the hell happened. Um, got up went back to my bike and realized there was no seat on my bike. Um, looked around there, it was on the side of the road. So as I said, the, the bolt that holds the seat to the seat post is snapped in half. You know, I, I don't know how many people have ever had that happen to them, let alone a race, but I've never heard I've it happen. I've never ever. heard of that no. happening. No. Just, <laughs> look, that's not true. I, ha- I went across the Simpson Desert for the Simpson Desert Cycle Challenge right. many years ago, and there was a guy who broke his seat post doing that okay. um and he rode for like another 70 k's with no seat post nothing yeah well that's 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 what i contemplated i kind of thought right you know i was still in the mindset of, i could still do this like how far have i got to go can i can i get back on and ride the rest of the bike not sitting down um and at that stage a spares van came along um and this is like 20 minutes later or something, Spare Zone came along and they looked at the bike and said, oh, hang on a second, we might be able to do something for you. So they drove off, drove back. 45 minutes later, they had a, a spare seat from some other guy, DNF, same type of bike. So they gave me his seat. So I managed to finish the bike. I was you know, an hour slower than what I'd hoped to. And because the seat was slightly different, my back was sore. And yeah, I, I took off on the run aggressively in this kind of like super optimistic kind of, idea that i could still make up the time but of course i couldn't so anyway i finished in i don't know 11 and a half hours or something so third year i kind of went back and thought right this, this year i'm going to nail it day before the race i walked 
walked into the in the car park, just walking from one car to another or something, and walked through these bushes and got bitten by three wasps, um, total of five bites on my arm. Um, I'm hypersensitive to insect bites, so it was pretty painful. I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't go anaphylactic. I don't need an injection, but I, I swell up quite a lot. So this is the day before the race. I kind of, oh, okay, it's fine. It'll be all right. So I do the swim. Where, where were the bites? On my arms. I had one bite on my forearm, yep. two bites on my elbow, and, and two bites on my bicep. So I, I do the swim. I get out of the swim and look at my arm, and it's like I've just got Arnold Schwarzenegger's right arm and my skinny little left arm. That's oh, all right. I don't need, no I don't need my arms anymore. It's a bike and a run. It's cool. So I'm on the bike, and 60, 70 k's in, I'm thinking, oh, not feeling that great like i just feel a bit blur so i pushed on um time wise I'm, I'm just hanging in there what i need to do to qualify and then about 140 k's in i'm really not feeling too good like i'm starting to feel a bit kind of dizzy and lightheaded so i pushed on finished the bike took off on the run and thought no i'm really not feeling good i'm really starting to be at the point where i don't know if i can do this so I stopped to a walk and I felt a little bit better, started to run again and felt instantly worse again, started to walk again, felt a little bit better again. I thought, oh, all right, okay, this is not my day. So I'm not one for DNFing, so I walked uh, the rest of the race and did six hours 50 for the marathon and uh, finished, but of course didn't qualify. Fourth year, um, Went back uh, again. Just, Hank, before you go into your fourth year, I mean, your lymphatic system would have been yeah going nuts. Nuts. Yeah, exactly. With your arm like that. It's no wonder yeah. you couldn't do anything. Like, you've got yeah. nothing. <laughs> you've got no drainage in your arm left. No, that's right. Exactly so, right. So, your body just, oh. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't good. <laughs> anyway, no. So fourth, yeah. fourth year, I go back and had a good swim, a good bike. I, I ran 3.10 or 3.12 for the marathon. Did nine hours 42, I think, from memory, which would have qualified me for every single Hawaii since the history of the Australian Ironman, except for that year, which had a high input of overseas entrance. So I missed out by, I don't know, 10 minutes or something. So, okay. Fifth year, let's try again. <laughs> um, fifth year, finally, good swim, good bike, hopped off the bike started running and I knew I needed to run at least under 310 and probably 305 or quicker um, to make sure I got a spot. First K or so, knee started to hurt. I thought, you know what? I don't care, knee. You're just going to put up with this because we're not doing this again. You're going to run fast and you're going to shut up and not bitch and moan because you've got no choice. This is a conversation I had in my head. Yeah. Um, so um, took off and – whether it was just that conversation I had worked or whether the, the knee just kind of warmed up after run, but had an absolute blind of a run past God knows how many people like I was standing still. Because my, my bike's not the best. Like I, I rode 515, which is quickish, but not that quick really. Um, and I swam, I don't know, 56. So it's, again, decent, but certainly not great. I mean, I think, I think my swim was 250th, my bike 125th, and then I had the eighth fastest run. Um so, yeah, you can appreciate it. I passed a lot of people in the run. You, yeah, absolutely. So finally, finally qualified. So that was a – what turned out was going to be like a two-year project, turned out to be a kind of a seven-year kind of journey to finally qualifying. Um, so qualified, did Hawaii, 
kind of had a year off and then thought, let's do it again. And then you know, it's kind of thing that once you've done it once, you know what to do. The next time I wanted to qualify, I qualified straight away. Even though I had a flat tyre, I had a, a drafting penalty, um, still managed to qualify. So I think just mentally, once once you've broken that barrier, I just knew what I had to do to run. Plus I had a bit more luck. I think I'd used all my bad luck uh, in the first four years. So uh, <laughs> But I think, and I think for me, Ironman was really important. I think it showed me that with the right mental approach, um, you can pretty much do anything. Like I'm not, I'm not of the mindset that you can do anything your mind sets out to do because I think there are some limitations. But I think as long as you accept to a degree what those limitations might be, then you can do what you want to achieve. Like, and what I mean by that is, say for example, I said, look, I want to break 210 for the marathon it's like well that's never going to be possible there is some genetic component necessary mechanically for that to you just can't do yeah it. Yes. yeah i mean yeah if i train my train my ass off and dedicated my life to running the quickest marathon possible i reckon i could have gone sub 230 um may maybe approaching 220 but i think genetically that would have been my limit so i'm not a big believer in you can do anything at all but i think i think we underestimate what we can do and Ironman, for me, like if, if you said to me at the first year of Ironman that you could run nine or you could do a 919 Ironman and run a 303 marathon, I would have said, no, <laughs> you're kidding me, that's that's not possible. But through those years of Ironman, I kind of developed that kind of mental belief that, you know what, it might not seem possible, but it's not that far outside the realms of a possibility that with the right mental approach and the right training, um, it is possible. And I've always been a big believer that, training like hard training can make up for a lot in terms of genetics like and that's one reason why i chose ironman and ultras is that you can't bluff your way through an ironman like you can't bluff your way through an ultra whereas you know at school i was racing 800s and 1500s and 3000s and what i found at school was that guys that were just genetically gifted could do bugger all training and still beat me even though i trained my butt off um which was kind of a little bit disappointing for me. Like I trained really, really hard and a mate of mine who smoked could beat me. He's like, ah, you know, why? He does bugger all training and I'm training really hard. So I think that's what kind of led me to kind of think, well, let's choose an event where people that are genetically gifted can't bluff their way through. They'll beat me because they train hard, not because they're just genetically gifted. And that's why I kind of got into Ironman and progressed from there to, to ultras. That makes total sense. I completely, uh, see where you're coming from there with yeah you if you're going to start an ultra you better have put in some work beforehand yeah that's yeah. and and you I expect think, to finish it of course like you can start whatever you like and not go yeah, yeah, yeah. Far, but uh, if you're going to finish it it's going to uh yeah and i think that's the um, reason that kind of ties in well with another story which not about me this time is the belief you have of something you can finish like i think some people, even ultras, question whether they can finish it. And the thing that I took away from my first ultra is that for an ultra, it's different to an Ironman. Because an Ironman, you can do a 200k bike ride, so you know you can do the distance. You can run 38k's in training, so an extra 4k's is, is no big deal. Whereas for an ultra, like, you know, for a 100-mile race, your longest run might be 50k, 60k, 70k maybe. But for most people, between 40 and 60k. So there's a big jump between what you've actually done and what the race demands you to do. And I think what I learned in that first race is you've got to have a belief or a faith in yourself that that is possible. 
and and that faith is not something you can objectively kind of like come to a conclusion of. You can't go, well, because I've done 100k a week in training, I can run 160 kilometers nonstop. Like that logic does, it falls down because it's such a big jump between what you've done in training and what the race requires. Whereas in an Ironman, you can say, well, I've done all three disciplines. I've done pretty much the maximum distance of those disciplines. All I have to do is put it together. It's not such a big jump. But ultra as it is, it is a big jump. So you have to have that faith that despite the gap between training and the race, despite the fact that 60 is into a mile and your legs are already tired, you still believe that it is possible, even though the evidence might not suggest it is possible. So one of my clients I coached wanted to do UTMB, and he'd done it uh, twice and missed the cutoffs, and then he got me to help him out. Um, so we did a lot of work, obviously, in training, but also on, on the mental side of things. Um, so, yeah, in the race, like up to Cormayor, and for those who don't know UTMB, 170K, 2,000 metres of vert, sorry, 10,000 metres of vert, runs from Chamonix, Italy, Switzerland, back to Chamonix again. And Cormayor is about 75K in. It's not quite halfway, but people think it signifies the halfway point of the race mentally. So um, he got to Cormayor and he was seven minutes behind, sorry, seven minutes ahead of the cutoff. Um, and that was going to be, or turned out to be the furthest the biggest gap he had ahead of the cutoffs for the rest of the race. So for the next 94 kilometres, he was always seven minutes or less inside the cutoffs. And in fact, in the last 60K, he was never more than two or three minutes ahead of the cutoffs. So we get in the cutoffs, get into a checkpoint. He'd ask the guys, how much time have I got? you got three minutes. We've got two minutes. Now, people around him were pulling out left, right and centre because they thought, I've got 70K to go. I'm two minutes ahead of the cutoff. I'm never going to make it. I'll pull out now. He saw so many people. He'd, he'd leave the checkpoint and head out again, and he saw so many people turning around and coming back because they just didn't believe they could make the next cutoff. They kind of thought, well, the pace I'm going at, I can't do it, so I'll give up now rather than get stranded halfway. But he kept pushing. He kept believing. He kept thinking about what I told him about, you know, you, you haven't DNF'd until someone taps you on the shoulder and says, sorry, mate, you can no longer continue. I need your race number. Don't make the decision for them. Let them make the decision for you. So he kept going, kept going, and he finished. And he, and he was, I can't remember the end time, um, but he, he finished the race under the cutoffs. And I think it's an important lesson for people to learn is that if you're the type of runner that, kind of is on the fringe of the cutoffs. Don't let officials, don't let yourself make the decision for the officials. Let the officials make the decision for you. And even if even if you're kind of way ahead of the cutoffs, like I've had some people who say they're targeting, I don't know, 34 hours for the race, and they have problems that they, they're nauseous or, you know, they're so tired on their feet they start falling asleep, and they DNF. And they're like, well, why did you do that? Like you had eight hours ahead of the cutoffs. So other clients, or when they go back the next year, if they have a similar problem, they get to a cutoff checkpoint and they think, right, I'm feeling really ordinary. I've been throwing up for the last two hours. I can't keep any nutrition down. What can I do? Okay, well, I'm six hours ahead of the cutoff. So let's think about what Andy told me. All right, let's just stay at, the, at this checkpoint for the next hour and see what happens. Let's have a sleep for an hour and see what happens. Two hours' time, they've managed to get some you know, vegetable soup down, have a cup of tea, finally get some food down. Off they go again, starting to walk. By the next checkpoint, they're starting to feel a bit better, and they finish. 
okay, they might have finished in 37 hours and 34. But at the end of the day, when you look back on your race results and you see a 37-hour UTMB finish or you see a DNF, which one would you prefer? You know, for most people, they'd much rather that 37-hour than a DNF. So I think people just underestimate themselves sometimes. And I think you've just got to believe in yourself and believe that you can find a way to finish if you just problem solve and troubleshoot along the course rather than just go, you know what, I can't do it anymore. Right, look, I, to- I totally agree with you. It's one of those things that um, at the start of this year, I wasn't going to race at all. I just didn't physically think it would be possible. And um, then I got fit enough and I went, oh, look, I'll enter. And it wasn't it wasn't myself that entered. It was actually one of my running buddies. He said, you're fit enough to race. I'm paying for your entry. <laughs> and I went, awesome. I went, rightio. And then, like, seriously, half an hour later, he goes, right, you're entered. Um, I'll pick you up. I'll be dropping you off at the start of the race, and I'll see you at the finish line. And uh, so, yeah, so that, that's kind of how my racing started. And then, I, and then I went, oh, I can race. And it's just come to the point now where with having cancer, you know, as, as I said to you before we started recording, like last night I had treatment. Today I haven't run, and that's because if, if I like I feel okay, but I know that if I run, because of the damage that's done physically from the treatment, if I run, I'll get a mechanical injury, and then I won't be able to run. So yeah. it's just taking those sort of things into account. Um, and, yeah, one of my biggest ones was as soon as I went, oh, I'm going to race an ultra this year, it was radio. Well, whatever happens, until someone actually comes and physically cuts your armband off or physically yep. takes your number off you, you haven't finished. Just have a sleep. Like I know, I know for me personally now, sleep is a massive thing. I, I according yeah. to Garmin, I sleep sixty percent more than anyone else my age. <laughs> And that's simply because I, I need the need recovery it. time yeah. because I'm fighting cancer. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so it was just in a race. Well, if no one else needs to sleep and I need to sleep, well, then I will do that. And I, yeah. it was one of the things that, um, you know, I'm talking about racing again next year and a mate of mine um, he said, look, I want to race these races. Can you come and race with me? And I said, well, we need to practice sleeping for those races. And he goes, well, how are we going to do that? And I said, well, why don't we just run around my block all night long and then every hour we'll just sit in a chair out the front of my house and have a sleep and then we'll get up and run again. And he goes, yeah, that's a little bit nuts. And I went, um, this type of racing is a little bit nuts. Nuts. Like that's, yeah. that's just what you've got to do. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, it's that sort of thing. Um Having said that, I do have a situation that I'd love to know about from a coaching point, of, from your coaching point of view. Um, I've been a coach all of my adult life. That's that's my profession. Yeah. And um, so I find it very hard at times not to coach. Uh, it's just the 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 natural way that I fall into things, and I know. Yep. During an ultra this year, I came across a lady and I said, how are you doing? This is, I 
must have been about 10 o'clock at night. So it was pitch black and we were right, like right in the bush, couldn't see a thing. The only way that I, you know, I, I was catching up to her and um, she just told me how terrible she felt. And I knew that for me personally, if I stayed there, that was going to pull me down a bit because I wasn't feeling brilliant at that point either. I had very sore feet. Um, about 10 Ks later, the, the, the blisters popped and it felt much better. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, what do you say to those people? Like she was having a very low moment, like really low. Um, and if, if I was there as a coach, I would have stayed and talked to her and, it, and, as a coach, you kind of absorb, or at least I do, you absorb that person's feelings and, you know, then you can make an assessment, et cetera. And by absorbing their, their feelings, um, it, it relieves them. So I, I sort of see it as a bit of an energy transfer, yep. you know, without getting all philosophical <laughs> stuff. But um, And in a race, I see the same thing happening. You know, like I want to transfer good vibes, but I need to keep enough in my reserve bank for me personally. Yep. So I, I said, well, look, you have a, it's not far to the next aid station, eat something when you get there. And, you know, I just, I just kept running. But it, what do you say to people who are having a really low moment in an ultra, that low moment where you think they're going to pull out? Now, in this case, this lady could not pull out at that point because if she pulled out where she was, it was so far from anywhere that, yeah. you know, no one was going to come and get her. Let's go with that until the morning. Yeah. So uh, unless... Yeah. I think there's two things there. There's firstly the pre-race conversation. Um, so what I say to my athletes is, particularly ones that haven't got a lot of experience in ultras, because once you've done you know, a number of ultras, you understand that there's going to be some low moments. Like you can prepare you know, as best as you possibly can, but chances are there's going to be at least some point of the race where you question your reason for doing races like this. So why, why did I think this was a good idea? This is just... Like, I'm not enjoying it. I'm not having fun. Why did I do this? This is just silly. That's just a normal part of ultras for most people. And I think if you know that and understand that's probably going to happen in an ultra, you can answer that question before the race starts and have those answers. It's like, ah, oh, that's right, because I like to challenge myself. And if it was easy, then I'd be picking something harder. So this feeling is just the challenge I have to overcome to get the sense of satisfaction that I get out of ultras in the first place. Like if I never felt that challenge, then I, I wouldn't be doing it. I'd be doing something different. So understanding that you know, part of the reason you do these kind of events is because there are moments that feel particularly difficult kind of helps you accept it more in the race. And then you can flip out of that negative mindset and get back to kind of neutral or positive much, much quicker. So that's the first thing is to preempt that point in time uh, in a race with some strategies. And that, that strategies will depend on the person, like your self-talk um, differs from person to person. But if you can, as a coach, if I can get them thinking about that before the race, um, throw some potential questions that they might ask themselves in the race at them, get them to come up with some answers, then they're going to be more prepared if that happens during the race. During the race, then, I think... A conversation has to be had that, okay, so you come across somebody on the trail, they're feeling really bad, they, they tell you, look, I don't really want to go on anymore. And I think you just, brutal honesty, I think, is sometimes called for. It's like, okay, where you are now, 
there is no escape except for a rescue helicopter and you're not injured or and you've not passed out there's no medical condition for you so we can't get a medic that copper in to, to um, help you so you've got two choices you can lie on the side of the trail till morning or you can walk to the next aid station which one do you want to do you know and often that just that brutal honesty giving them the only options they have so like, I, I don't want to sleep on the side of the trail by myself tonight so i'll walk to the next aid station um so that's what i would do of course if there's a health issue you know a different story i mean i did a race oh, yeah, that's a great totally walk. yeah yeah I did, I did great north walk and i um, overheated and collapsed on the side of the trail and, and just about passed out uh and I, luckily i had some you know runners who came past and a few of them stayed with me a few of them went on to get help and you know, that looked after me a different situation it wouldn't matter what they said i, I couldn't do anything um but you know, that runner that just kind of like lost their way in terms of mentally and just uh, questioning their will to live basically um i think some brutal honesty is often the best way to snap them out of it and go look it's three k's next aid station you can walk that in 30 minutes then you can either you know dnf you can rest up you can choose what you want to do but you can't just sit here um but i think it's much easier handled pre-race as a coach um, and giving them strategies to cope with those kind of feelings before the race starts um that's how i would approach it i agree with you i think that's uh Excellent advice. And that's probably a good place for us to wrap up for today. And uh, thank you very much, Andy. That's It's been absolutely fantastic to speak with you. Uh, I, I do appreciate you giving up some of your valuable time. And, absolutely a pleasure. Uh, many, great, many great coaching tips in there. So thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Run, Walk, Crawl. Thank you, Andy, for imparting so much of his coaching knowledge to us today. Great to have him along. If you want to look up Andy Dubois uh, for any further coaching tips, etc., Andy operates his coaching program out of beautiful Byron Bay. But he coaches online, so you'll be able to look him up. If you enjoyed today's episode, or any episode for that matter, please leave us a positive review if your podcast broadcaster allows you to do that. Don't forget to subscribe. It's now the beautiful festive season. Have a very merry, wonderful festive holiday season. Enjoy your training. I hope you get some time off over this period. And uh, last week, uh, if you note, I was uh, in hospital getting a PET scan. Uh, I also had cancer treatment and uh, the PET scan came back good, really, overall. Um, Look, I've still got cancer. They're, they're still active tumours, but um, they're stable. And stable means that they're not growing super rapidly, which means that the treatment is currently working. And uh, th- that treatment does knock me around a bit um, and certainly slows up my running. And so last week was quite a, quite a low kilometre week, but overall, uh, not too bad. And uh, the only thing that concerned me on the scan was uh, my right femur glowed which could mean either an acute injury or a cancer or something to to deal with in the future with doctors, and I'll, I'll be having a chat with them next week, so I'll, I'll let you know. Anyway, that's it for this week. I'm Ashley Drew. Thanks again for listening. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. See you next week.